Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush, and this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the bits of Westminster and Whitehall that just aren't working. And I'm really pleased to have Harry Lambert, our contributing writer, join us for this discussion. Harry, you've been on the podcast in the past, so our listeners should recognise you, but you've been away for a bit. But you have lately been writing about the parts of Westminster that aren't working. You reviewed a new book, really interesting book by Ian Dunt called How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't. And we were chatting a a bit about it in the office and we thought it would be a good one to chat about on this podcast because you open the piece with your experience being a lobby journalist, which until recently you were and now you've got more of a roving brief. So why don't you tell me a bit about why that experience was resonated with you when you were reading this book? Thank you. It's good to be back. Look, we've both been... When were you in the lobby? About 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. yeah. So we've both been in the lobby and we know what it's like. And I, it was only by reading this book by Ian Dunn that I had the words to describe why I found it dissatisfying. Because I had such a rich time to cover. Last you know, I was there when Johnson was falling and at the beginning of Trust. And in many ways, that's a fantastic story. And I don't mean to sound underappreciative of that experience. But I think the strange thing about being a lobby journalist that we can get into is somehow being in Westminster feels very incidental so much of the time. It feels like the real action is elsewhere, which seems bizarre because that's the heart of Parliament. But I think what Dunt's book explains and we can talk about is the way power is actually wielded in Britain is quite different from the way it's scrutinised day to day by the lobby. And the institution at the heart of the lobby is the daily briefing. Well, there's two even, but the briefing that you have with the government's official spokesperson. And this is an opportunity for often about, I'd say about 50 journalists to pepper the government spokesman with questions. And they do it as a pack. Now, when it starts to work, when they find a line that the government is struggling to defend or doesn't have a good answer for, it's actually quite a, an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, they I remember also, I used to love watching the senior journalists doing that yeah. when I was in the lobby, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's almost emotional. You're like, this is journalism in action. And, and you see all the old pros and you can see the way they're like prizing, prizing a line out of, the lobby, out of the government. And they all work together despite having rival news organisations that they're employed by. However... Outside of that, or on days when you're not getting any inf- new information, it, there's just an unreality to the whole place because 
and Dump puts it really well in the book. He says that the problem is that once a policy has been passed, it, ex- it effectively ceases to exist for the lobby. And I think you do a lot of political reporting with a kind of small p that is outside of Westminster. That's all about the impact of policy, but that's actually quite unusual. And you don't and you don't feel that in Parliament. So you're constantly walking past these stands produced by the House of Commons Library, research briefings into the impact of policies and everything else. But that's not the currency of the news industry. And that's not the dynamics that you internalise as a new lobby journalist. Yeah, I mean, I was really pleased to to read that critique that you wrote in your piece because it really resonated with me. And it is actually, like you say, it's quite unusual to come across. I don't know, maybe lots of people have made the decision that I did, but I also felt like you did, that I was, I had a ringside seat to the action, but it felt like the action was actually elsewhere, which is why sort of my interest developed into sort of the impact of policy on people and on Britain rather than constantly being in Westminster all the time and just reporting on the often personality-led stories that drive the news there, which, you know, I I have no judgment of those stories. I'm really interested in them. I've been discussing them every week on this podcast. But I I agree, the lobby system restricts journalists, even though it's, it's one of those jobs that everyone wants because it's so exciting. You get a lot of freedom as well from the newsroom. You can go and do your own day and everything like that. So it's quite fun and it's a good lifestyle. But I do think often there is a bit of frustration, even among lobby journalists themselves, that they don't get to follow up or have a deeper dive on the stories that actually have a big impact across the country. And it's a bit of a shame that it's so binary, because when you're doing it from the outside, you don't get that access that you were just talking about. You don't get to speak to the prime minister's spokesperson. You don't you don't have as many contacts as people in the lobby do because they're in parliament day to day, talking to people all the time, getting that kind of behind the scenes information. It's much harder for me, say, to access that. I have to work a bit harder because you have to queue outside Parliament and get in like you're a member of the public. Then again, you have more time to go and report the impact of the policies and the legislation that's being passed all the time in Westminster, which I find a privilege and that I know a lot of lobby reporters who I know wish that they could do more of. So it's a bit of a false binary because these things are the same, aren't they? Politics is cannot be separated from the people it's supposed to serve. Yeah, completely right. I mean, that, that one of the great benefits of working in the lobby, as you say, is just a distant colony <laughs> from the imperial capital. Outpost, yeah, yeah for whoever employs you. And your colleagues are really the other lobby journalists rather than the people mm. back at HQ. But I think that is the strange choice that journalists, political journalists have to make in this country. Either go into Westminster and have all that access, but be essentially channeled into covering things in quite an immediate way. Mm. Dunt quotes one editor who describes his journalists, his political journalists, as producing fast food. And I think that's there's truth in that. It's not that these journalists, many of whom are our friends, we ourselves were in there. Yeah. It's not that they're poor journalists at all. They're brilliant journalists often. It's just that the dynamics of any institution will work upon you. And you will start to feel that it's very difficult to discuss really any issue that doesn't fall into one of three boxes. Either an intra-Tory fight, an intra-Labour fight, or a Tory Labour fight. And if you can't politicise an issue in that way, then it doesn't really enter the battlefield, if you like, of the lobby. And that's really frustrating because there's so many deeper subjects that that span the the whole realm, different departments, different parties. A couple of examples. Was the mass academisation of schools a good idea in the last decade? Is mass university education? Why has homelessness increased so much? These Why have we sold off so much the British state? Unless you can get some element of one of the two main political parties engaged in these ideas, it's quite hard to cover them. Yeah, absolutely. And then you're always playing catch up. So I've got two examples of this. 
they're both to do with regulation. Sounds dry, sounds boring, isn't the kind of thing that a lobby journalist might get more than one headline out of, wouldn't be able to pitch their editor loads of stories about regulators being cut. Um, But I read Peter Apps's book about Grenfell lately, and it was really interesting because it said the, the sort of original sin of what happened in Grenfell was the bonfire of regulation that David Cameron brought in, where it was, I think it was, if you bring one in, you have to take two out in terms of regulations. That was probably covered by the lobby at the time as bonfire of regulations. One headline, one day over, it's passed, that story's gone, it's time to move on. But what happened, of course, was the seed was planted for the kind of decisions that were made that meant that this dodgy bit of regulatory fragments that were lost led to the, not directly, but was a part of the story of why Grenfell was allowed to be refurbished in the way that it was with the cladding that that was put on there that turned out to be so lethal. And that's not something that when you're in the lobby, and actually, to be fair, out of the lobby, it's very difficult to cover a story like that is so technical and sell it to your editor as something that your readers might want to read. And then you have a disaster like this that bubbles up at some point and everyone covers it, but you feel like you're too late to the story. The other example that I was going to give was a sewage crisis, which is happening now. Some of the seeds of that crisis were planted in cuts to the environment regulator, environment re- environment regulations. That's again, that's not a sexy subject that you want to cover at, at the time that involves big Westminster personalities and, like you say, either an intra-Labour or intra-Tory or Labour-Tory fight because the opposition often isn't going to get its teeth into that either. And then you see what's happening in our waterways now, and it is really shocking. But again, you feel like you've missed that period to scrutinise how it happened. And this, I think, brings us on to the part of Westminster that works very well, but again, doesn't really fit with the lobby, which is select committees, which are only an invention of the last 45 years and have got increasingly strong and independent. And they have done great reports on the issues you're discussing. And that's a sort of, again, the strange thing about being a lobby journalist is lots of strong work is being done by much maligned MPs and Commons officials into things like the sewage crisis. And they produce these brilliant reports, which might get a bit of attention, but again, they're part of their set, they're a sideshow. And I don't know how we fix this problem, but it does give you the sense the whole time that you're not really focusing on the essential issues. I think another way to to think about this is, as a lobby journalist, you're so focused the whole time on, okay, what is this minister trying to do in this department? And you almost give that minister complete power. But I think another good thing we could get into that, that Dunt's book talks about is any ambition, any politician has to go through all these layers layers like the civil service, the treasury and so forth. And so again, I don't think we do a good enough job as journalists full stop of really understanding how you get something through and like the layers of power in this country. It's not just the minister coming in and failing or succeeding. Their thing has to be passed to a department and that department can get it wrong in all sorts of ways. And we don't really understand often why things have gone wrong. Yeah, and we just blame the minister. Yeah, and I think we misrepresent how much power ministers actually have as well to the public. One example that I can remember was from when I first started working at the New Statesman. Ian Duncan Smith was working pension secretary and he had this almost villain status, particularly among our readers who were very dismayed to see what was happening to the welfare state, quite rightly. From reading memoirs since those times and seeing what Ian Duncan Smith has gone on to do 
post his ministerial career or his time in that department, you can see the barriers, the many barriers that he was up against. George Osborne, the Treasury, other people in his department. It's not straightforward. It's not just minister comes in and succeeds or fails. And I think I look back at some of our coverage at the time and perhaps we were feeding that personality politics too much rather than explaining what why disability benefits were being cut in that way, why the benefit cap was introduced. We did do a lot on universal credit, but I... I the anatomy of universal credit. It wasn't a sexy subject. We did do it. And that's to the credit of my editors at the time. But a lot of places weren't doing that either. And so I think you're right. Absolutely. Part of our job as journalists should be to explain what the barriers are to influence and power and getting legislation through, as well as who the personalities are involved in that process. But I think I think part of the problem for us is you read in the book about a different generation of journalists, an older one, who actually got information out of press offices. <laughs> and they would call them up and they would get put through to an expert in the department who would explain what the department is doing. That does not happen anymore. By the time you and I both joined in 2014, as I'm fond of saying on this podcast, by the time we started calling press offices, it was just obfuscation. It was just how to prevent you telling a story, you the journalist. And it's very difficult now to reach anyone inside these departments and getting information out of them. And people like Alistair Campbell can be blamed for that because when New Labour came in, they wanted to control the press so strongly that they didn't allow civil servants to make those briefings anymore. And that culture has continued. Mm-hmm. So it's now really hard to get a sense of what's happening inside departments, why they're doing it. These things often have a logic, but you don't get a chance to ask those questions of the experts. And just to your point, you know, I remember speaking to a senior aide to a health secretary in recent years, asking him about changing the NHS. And he said, <laughs> we don't really have any control over the NHS. Since the creation of NHS England, it's essentially autonomous. It's run by the head of the civil service in charge of that institution. So we can persuade and have meetings with, but the health secretary does not sit around and control the nation's hospitals. You could say that's a good thing. But the point is that it's not the minister who's in power there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think maybe for our listeners who've never had to call a civil service press office, we should explain the process a bit. So what happens is you get a story about a policy going wrong or a policy disagreement or something. You want to get what's going on inside government. You want to get their line. You call up the department. Sometimes it's a switchboard and they put you through to some other mysterious layer of bureaucracy. I don't know if you find that now. And you get through to a person and they sound absolutely terrified most of the time. They're not the expert on the policy area. They will never have an answer for you when you ring them. They'll always say, well, can you put it in an email and I'll find the right person to reply. They're not finding the right expert to reply. They're finding a more senior person in their press office to send the most polished line they can to reply to you. And then they expect you to quote it verbatim in your piece. But it is just spin. And I'm not blaming them because I know people who do those jobs and I know how difficult they are. But isn't it isn't in any way transparent it isn't in any way trying to help the journalists understand the policy unless you've got good contacts in the in that department which not everyone has you can't be a generalist all the time then you can't explain that policy to the full extent to the reader and often that will be to the government's detriment because the government aren't telling you what the actual barriers are to making it work properly and what they're actually working on when you foi stuff you're not allowed to get back the sort of formulation of the policy process. So sometimes you never see how the sausage is made. Yeah, and I think with all people, and just you're reminding me of a Christopher Nolan podcast, I'm no great fan, but I just remember his line where he said, the way he deals with studio executives, because he's spending so much money on these productions, is you just got to keep them informed. If they want to come to the set and talk, allow them to do that. People just want to understand. And that's the big error that the government communications staff make across all of these departments is if you block journalists out, 
we're just going to be more incentivized to write a story that's critical. If you help us understand why you're doing something, then we will often try and explain that to the reader. So I think that's another reason why it doesn't make sense. And I think you're right. That the reason why I think the title of this book, Westminster is Broken, or rather the title of our review about the book is right, is because it's a structural problem. It's not that the press officers are at fault, no. the MPs, the journalists, that it's about incentives and how they work. And it's very difficult to operate outside the system. And I think it's really helpful to have a structural critique of the way power works. And that's what I actually worry about with the new Labour government, right? So the new, I'm sorry, I'm very, being very presumptuous. The potential Labour government that might you come in. You new Labour government. <laughs> yeah, I do. You look at the Starmer prospectus and I don't really see any understanding of the structural constraints on power. They're talking as if they have the sort of freedom to enact change without having to go through all these roadblocks. And I don't know if any work has been done to take this book as a blueprint, if you like. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there if you, if you focused on structural errors. And instead, what we have is we have discussions around reforming the House of Lords. Now, the House of Lords, not to get too sidetracked, but the House of Lords is actually one of the best functioning institutions in Westminster, at least I would argue. That's where a lot of legislative scrutiny is taking place. The illegal migration bill right now is being scrutinised in the Lords, not in the Commons, because in the Commons, the party has such control over... It's MPs. So again, it's does the does the incoming Labour government, if indeed there is one, do they understand what the problems are? Because they want to replace the Lords. Yeah. And I think that's a complete sideshow. From what I understand from the inside, Keir Starmer is genuine about his shock at the way that Westminster works or rather doesn't work. Let's not forget he isn't actually a Westminster man. He is a civil he is a civil servant. He's a former senior civil servant. He headed a department essentially as director of prosecutions. But apparently, and I've heard this phrase used about him, he's a bit of a boy scout about the issue of how Westminster doesn't work. He's genuine about it and is I think he is appalled by some of the systems that don't work. So I think that when they come in, that is something they want to look at. But of course, there's going to be priorities. And there's an assumption that this Gordon Brown Commission, which includes abolishing the House of Lords, but lots of other things about devolution and decentralisation of power, that that's not going to be a first term thing. And it was interesting when I was speaking to Andy Haldane recently for an interview, who's had a role in advising Labour on their version of levelling up, he was saying, I want them to prioritise that when they get into Parliament in their first term. He agrees with you, I suppose, that the idea of changing the power structures should come before introducing the policy, because otherwise they're going to come up against the same barriers that they always do. After the break, we'll chat about whether there's need for voting reform and MPs and ministers and their false incentives. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. From The New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now, Harry, when we have these conversations, uh, often voting reform comes 
into play. There is an assumption, particularly on the left and the liberal sort of progressive side of politics, that if only we reformed the voting system to make it fairer, then everything would be okay, i.e. we would have the people we agree with in government. We've spoken on previous podcasts about that, why that is not necessarily the case and shouldn't be the assumption. But what does Dunt say and what do you think about whether or not changing the voting system would change how people engage in politics, how our politicians represent us? So he's very keen on changing the voting system. And his whole analysis is essentially there's a sort of macho way we do policy in this country, which would be completely reformed if we had the consensual politics of PR. I personally, again, it's a bit like the Lords for me. It's a sort of A-level politics answer to our problems. Let's change the voting system. Let's reform the House of Lords. These aren't the big issues. First past the post can work fine, has many advantages. We can have a debate all day about voting systems. But it's not a clear failing in the way some of these other issues we've discussed are. And I think what we want is a higher degree of scrutiny of policies and a much better understanding of how power is actually wielded within departments. And I think just one really good example to, to talk about, uh, to move us away from voting systems, because I think that's just, uh, it's, mis- it's, it's a misunderstanding of what the issues are. Changing the voting system will do nothing to improve the way we handled, for instance, the evacuation of Kabul, mm-hmm. right? The evacuation of Kabul was a ministerial and civil service failing, which we have done nothing to prepare for in the future and to rectify. And and, and Dunst, you saw in what happened with the Sudan response as well. Completely, exactly. And Dunst's book does a good job of summarising the testimony from people like Raphael Marshall and Josie Stewart, who were Foreign Office whistleblowers, who talked about how understaffed and unprepared people were within the Foreign Office for that evacuation. Changing the voting system, reforming the House of Lords, it's not going to do anything for these problems. So these are the things we need to think about. Why can't we get the basics right? Why can't we staff our departments in a way that allows us to respond quickly to events? These are the structural issues we really need to think about. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of policing. So why doesn't policing in the UK work? It, it's failing on two counts. The culture is bad, as we've seen in horrible things that have happened, but also the Casey Review and so many other revelations about not just the Met, but other police forces as well. And also the actual operation of it is bad. If, if you're burgled, the police aren't coming anymore. Cases aren't being investigated or solved. People don't feel safe. People don't trust the police. And I've been speaking to a lot of people about this. And what's coming up a lot is, and, I, and of course, people within police forces would say this because they're looking for someone else to blame. But I do think there's a lot of truth in it, is that politics and the political system gets in the way. So every time someone says we should have a royal commission into what does that policing actually mean in modern Britain, most of police work is actually social, you know, mental health care, addiction services. It's all sorts of things that actually we don't necessarily expect a traditional police officer to do. But every time that's brought up, politicians say that that would take too long, it would cost too much. Basically, it's outside of the electoral cycle. So if it's not something that they can say within five years or within however much time they've got left in term or left in opposition, then they're not interested in it. They want quick fixes like recruiting 20,000 new police officers as they've just managed to do this spring, hit their target. But really, it's more of the same thing that's not working. And so that was I thought that was very interesting because that's a way of failing the public. That's a way of our political system and actually our democratic system failing the public on a day to day, very fundamental level. And it really reminds me of another thing Dan talks about, which is probation services and the way Chris Grayling reformed them disastrously in the 2010s. And the problem there was, uh, and again, Grayling within the department he was working with, but that was a case of a minister being powerful, coming in with a plan, Osborne and the Treasury liking it because it cut costs. Mm -hmm. But um, it completely 
reinvented the way probation worked in this country, made it essentially privatized large aspects of it, made it a payments by results model, but it wasn't something where you could measure results in an effective way. And it destabilized the entire career path for probation officers because you either had to specialize in really intense cases or quite low level ones rather than being able to mix and match the two, which led to a high degree of staff turnover. Lots of itty bitty stuff that didn't work out. And the way it was covered at the time and the way it happened was it was just a headline. It was a way of grailing, saying he was doing something innovative in justice and using it as a stepping stone. And because we cycle through ministers so quickly, because we don't hold ministers or civil servants to account, it didn't really matter whether that policy failed as as indeed it did. And I think that's, again, I don't quite know how we solve this problem, but one of the most frustrating things is how little we hold people to account when things go wrong. We do it a bit with ministers and MPs, but we really don't do it with civil servants. And now civil servants will say, I didn't come up with the policy. But that judging of performance inside departments is something I don't know how we do that better, but we don't seem to do it very well. It's really interesting because that's another one which is a sort of time bomb story eventually, and I think it happened recently, there's a horrendous story of someone reoffending, and everyone says for a day what's gone wrong with the probation system, and then the the scrutiny moves on to the next issue, which is really depressing. It's always as well with services that don't really touch that many people's lives. So I think the wonkish phase phrase for it would be the Cinderella services. So things that most people won't encounter in their lifetimes. I did a piece on children's social services, for example. It's under-scrutinised, it's underfunded, it's understaffed. There's all sorts of horrible things that happen every now and again to innocent children. And that's because it's not something that most journalists know very much about. And the public probably won't read very much about it unless it's a, it's a tragic story because they don't encounter it either. Social care is another one. The court system is a classic. And the probation system is probably the most neglected service of them all. And do we? This is the trick is, how do we change this? Obviously, we can write about it. Yeah. But I think that the thing to take away is we have a sort of structural issue where the power to, to put a spotlight on things, which is so crucial, is really wielded by the lobby, to go back to our first point. And that lobby, for whatever reason, isn't incentivized to, to stare at these darker recesses of the British state. And so the spotlight is glaring, I think, in the wrong place a lot of the time. I wonder if there could be, they would hate this, but I wonder if there could be a way of, you have to fob into select committee hearings. And if the sergeant of arms or whatever it's called notices that one publication isn't isn't sending enough people to select committees, they get their pass taken away or something like that. I like it. It's a sort of authoritarian (laughs) way of reshaping the lobby. (laughs) Well, we talked a lot about the sort of centre of power, but what about local government? It's bizarre, isn't it? Like the conversation about levelling up never really seems to talk about our councils, which basically have no funds and are doing less for higher council tax in most places. Yeah, I think local government is just so fascinating. So I think there are two big things I'd say. One is you can't be serious about levelling up and we should all be serious about levelling up unless you reform council tax, which is the most regressive tax we have in this country. It's levied at far higher rates, at far higher rates, places where the value of homes is lower. So if, for instance, you live in Hartlepool, you'll probably pay about one, one and a half percent of the value of your home in council tax. If you live in Kensington and Chelsea, you will pay 0.05%, which is just insane. So it's like a poll tax. Yeah, exactly. So first of all, there's that. Paul Johnson, by the way, talks about this in his recent book, Follow the Money, which is a kind of complimentary book to this dump book. But secondly, is councils themselves. We just had local elections for councillors. But I think we talk about the civil service. Power is wielded at a local level by council officials, not by councillors. Councillors have a sort of 
the role of a sort of board, if you like, overseeing council officials, but council officials wield the power at a local level. And I think we all feel rich, poor, north, south, every part of the country feels very little control of the, the local area. And when you and I have been reporting in different parts of the country, I don't know about you, but for me, it always comes up. Yeah, always. Yeah. They all feel powerless over their local area, over their streets, over their neighbourhoods, over the new development that's just gone up. I feel it in London. And so that's what's so strange. And that power is almost always being wielded by a local council official, one you've never heard of. Yeah. And you have no real Planning ability. officials in particular. Yeah, I think. <laughs> so I think that's another very strange thing that a kind of alien would look at our system and say, you guys are talking about power in Westminster and this MP and that minister, but you can't even control your own street. Well, absolutely. And this is why one of these stories that has been the most difficult to work on for me recently, it wasn't even that recent, but it was about low traffic neighbourhoods. I was having people ringing me up going, who else are you speaking to? And being like, you can't use my name, okay? I cannot be near this story, but I'll tell you this. It was, honestly, it was like reporting on something that seemed far more dramatic than just a few streets being closed in some boroughs around London. The reason why these things become so toxic and so close to people's hearts is because it is their lives. This is politics to them. It's affecting where they can park, where they can drive or where they can cycle, how safe their kids are when they're going to school, the state of their kids' lungs. It's so important to people's day to day. And yet it's seen as almost like a local story, but it's not. This is the point of politics for most people. If someone could vote to change the way that their streets were to have, like you say, some more control, some more power over them, that would be the biggest vote of their life, wouldn't it? Yeah. I know it's extraordinary and yet there's just no part of political debate really. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming back on, Harry. It was a really interesting discussion and I think you're going to carry on covering these kind of themes. So hopefully right. we'll have you back on again. That'd be great. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to plug the, oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. the New Statesman newsletter that we now have. That's why he's really here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're going to cover local government over and over. It's called The Saturday Read. You can sign up to it at saturdayread.substack.com or just search for Saturday Read Substack. And it is our sort of NS-wide Saturday email in which you'll get everything that we've done um, across books, ideas, politics, culture. It's giving you the NS in, in another digital form. If you don't want to be checking the website every day, though we strongly encourage you to do that. <laughs> and we also relaunched Morning Cool, which is now also on Substack. Again, we, we strongly encourage you to come and sign up, see what you think, and just filter us away in junk if you don't enjoy it. But try it out. Anusha's often in there. It's a good way to follow her pieces. <laughs> Thank you. And two of our regular podcasters, Freddie Haywood and Ben Walker, are writing Morning Call. So if you haven't signed up already, you absolutely should. All right. Thank you so much, Harry. And thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Harry Lambert. We'll be back on Thursday when we'll be talking about the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.